Our attention is getting significantly worse because of profound changes that have happened in the way we live, which includes some aspects of our tech that go way beyond them. But at the moment, we are responding with the equivalent of digital diet books. And if we respond to the attention crisis the same way we responded to the obesity crisis, we'll get the same outcome, which is an absolute disaster. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. It's literally my job to sit down and to read and to write and to think. But I increasingly find that my work life is absorbed by fragments, by meetings, by events, talks, and Twitter. Which is why I do this podcast. It disciplines me to do something that I've lost. It forces me to slow down and really think deeply about a topic, which is something that I've found increasingly hard to do. And I know I'm not alone. Over the past couple of years, almost everyone I know has told me that their attention is slipping. We're finding it harder to read a book or even watch a movie without getting distracted. And to be honest, it's kind of frightening. Which is why I'm almost grateful that Johan Hari has decided to take on our crisis of attention. I'm a big fan of Johan's work. He's the kind of writer that takes a topic he thought you understood and gives it new meaning. And that's exactly what he's done with his new book, Stolen Focus. We talk a lot on this show about how our devices and our apps are stealing our attention. And while Johan does spend a lot of time unpacking the harms of technology, his argument goes way beyond this. He takes a truly holistic look at the attention crisis, exploring everything from the food we eat, to the air we breathe, to the way we're raising our kids. In some ways, it's daunting to hear just how big and systemic Johan thinks this problem is. Reigning in big tech is one thing, but changing our way of life can seem almost impossible. But it's also a hopeful book, because Johan fundamentally believes that we can reclaim our attention. We just need to decide that it's something worth fighting for. Here's my conversation with Johan Hari. I... I listened to the book instead of read it. So I have your voice kind of ringing <laughs> through my head from like 10 hours of listening to you. You poor um, man. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Um, but I actually found it really affecting, I have to say. Um, in part because I think the the way in which this topic affected you comes through in your voice when you read this book. Mm. I mean, you can tell this is like... There's angst and anxiety and concern and like, <laughs> real concern and real curiosity about how to solve this problem, right? Like, I think those all come through when you read it. But I was wondering about one other thing before we kick off here is that I, I think we're almost exactly the same age. Hmm. And I, I kind of study and research technology and I'm doing it for like 20 years now. Um, and you've just spent three years, two years, however long it's been, thinking and talking to people who study this space. And I am wondering if there's something particular about our age and how this affects us. Mm. And whether we really are a generation or even just like a, maybe even a five-year period, frankly, that went to high school without these technologies, got them as we became adults in college. I mean, you mentioned getting email for the first time in university. Um, I, I did the same. I remember that sort of two or three years in university getting email. And I wonder if, if, if it affects us in the way it seems to affect you, and I know it does me, because we've seen both worlds and experienced both worlds and have bridged it somehow. That's so interesting. You're the first person to ask me that. And um, you know, just before I answer that, you saying that about the audiobook reminds me of the, the only time in my life I've ever wondered if I'd lost my sanity, which was I, I flew from London to Melbourne and uh, I couldn't sleep at all on the flight or the layover, so I was completely exhausted. And I got out at Melbourne Airport, and there's a place where you get the bus from the airport into the city. So I'm standing at the, the area where you wait, and suddenly I heard my own voice speaking about depression, but my lips weren't moving. And I was so tired. I'd been awake for like 36 hours. Saying, I literally thought for about 30 seconds, have I, am I having, like, am I going through psychosis? Have I gone mad, right? What's happening here? And then suddenly I realized the car in front of me, someone was listening to the audiobook of my book, Lost Connections. And if I had been more present-minded, I would have like leaned forward and I would have gone, 
hello, can you imagine how weird that would be if you're listening to the audiobook, especially in Australia, and then suddenly the author just appears next to you. I didn't do it if I'd had more, if I'd been more alert. So I'm longing oh, for the next have. time. That would have been over- fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm longing for the next time I overhear someone uh, listening to my audiobook. But the, um, I think the question you've asked is, is really interesting. And you must be right. I think our generation has a unique, we have a, obviously we have a unique experience. Every generation has unique experiences, but I think we have a very unusual set of perspectives in that we had our whole childhood to hold our adolescences without the internet, essentially. And then it arrives just as we become adults. And then the story of our adulthood is to a large degree the accelerated power of the internet and particularly an internet built around you know, what the brilliant Professor Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. I mean, it's those 20 years, right? Like it's from 20, uh, 20 to 40, essentially, is the 20 years history of the social web. That's a really, yeah, exactly. Our lives cleave in too, right? We've got that 20 years. I mean, I remember very clearly the first time I ever saw a cell phone. I was on the top of the 340 bus in North London, coming home from school. I was 13 or 14. And I heard someone speaking, but they clearly weren't talking to anyone. And I turned around and there was someone talking to, in my memory, this phone is like the size of a small cow, which can't be accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember everyone on the bus turning and glaring at him. And this was happening all over London at that time. People were really pissed off by the appearance of mobile phones. We thought people who were talking on them were assholes. And I remember someone turning to this guy and saying, mate, you're a wanker. (laughs) And we broke the main rule of British life, which is we all turned and looked at each other and smiled, right? Which you're never meant to do in Britain. And and I remember the first time I used email, it was when I went to university. And I remember trying it and thinking, oh, what's this? You know, is that it? <laughs> you know, like the, being very disappointed. If you had told me then that within 20 years, a kind of hybrid of these two things that I found initially repellent and tedious would sort of dominate the consciousness of my life and everyone's life, I would have thought you were completely bonkers. The first cell phone I had, I uh, won it in a raffle when I was in high school. And it was one of those big brick, <laughs> brick one of those huge like brick phones. And I brought it to school and it was absurd, right? Because nobody else had a phone. So there's like literally nobody I could call with this thing. So there was an option with the prize to trade it for like a hundred bucks or something. And so I took the hundred bucks <laughs> and gave it back because... I couldn't use it. <laughs> oh, how different life would be if we'd all made that choice. <laughs> oh my goodness, my goodness, yeah. So, I mean, I guess, what, is, was there a moment, like, you've worked on some big, intense topics, and I'm wondering if there was a moment when you realized this was a big problem, either in your life or in society, that that warranted this kind of treatment from your work and your research and your time and, and your attention, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I think... It was, it, it was a subject that came to me over many years. I thought, look, this is, uh, look, it was just personal. I could feel my own attention getting worse. Mm. With each year that passed, things that require deep focus that, that are so important to my sense of self, like reading books, having deep conversations, watching movies, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. I, I, was, I could see this happening to so many people around me. And when I started to look at the scientific evidence, you know, it was clear there's something odd going on. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when you and I were seven, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. Um, the average American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. I was thinking, well, there's something here. But to be honest, I, I'm not sure, it's always hard to know why you choose to write about things and why you choose to neglect other subjects. But I think I was afraid of looking into this subject. I think I thought it would be overwhelming. I think it thought it would be a downer. I think I, think I thought there might not be solutions. Um, and I, I hate pessimistic books. I just It's just a temperament thing. I, I would never want to write a book that made people feel screwed. Um, but there was a moment, it turned out I was wrong, by the way, there are solutions. But I think for me, as you know from the book, there was this particular moment, having had these sort of creeping doubts for a long time and this feeling that I should dig into this, there was this moment that for me where I thought, okay, so I have a nine-year-old godson who I call Adam in the book. And 
when he was nine, he developed this brief but extremely intense obsession with Elvis. Uh, I never found out how he even found out about Elvis, but it was particularly cute because he didn't know Elvis had become a kind of cheesy cliche. Um, and so he did it with this heart-catching sincerity, these Elvis impressions. Probably, probably the last person in the whole world to ever do a sincere impression of Elvis. And when I used to tuck him into bed at night, he used to get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life again and again. Um, I tried to skip over the bit at the end where Elvis dies on the toilet. And one night, I was talking about Graceland, where Elvis lived, and he said to me, looked at me very intensely, and he said, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I was like, yeah, sure. The way you do with nine-year-olds when, you know, you know, next week it'll be Legoland. And then he said, no, do you really promise you'll take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that again for for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. So Adam dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, he spent literally, I mean, this is not an exaggeration, all his waking time alternating between his iPhone, his iPad. His life was just this blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn, social media. And one day we were sitting on my sofa just, just behind where my laptop is here. And, and I've been trying to talk to him all day. And I just could not get a conversation going. Just like nothing could get any traction in his mind. And, and to be totally honest with you, Taylor, I wasn't that much better, right? I was staring at my own devices. And I suddenly remembered this moment from all these years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly. He didn't even remember this, but I reminded him. And I said, you know, we've got to break this numbing routine. Let's get out of here. Let's go all over the South. But you've got to promise that when we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel room, right? And he said, yeah, I promise I'll do that. And so two weeks later, we flew from London to New Orleans. And then two weeks after that, we arrived at the gates of Graceland. And when you get to Graceland now, this is even before COVID, there's no person to show you around. What happens is they hand you an iPad, you put in the in earbuds, and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. In every room, there's a representation of that room on the screen. So what happens is everyone just kind of walks around Graceland staring at their iPad. And I'm getting sort of slightly irritated by this. And we got to the the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room. And I'll never forget this. There was a Canadian couple, no disrespect to all Canadians listening, Canadian couple next to us who they're staring at the iPad and the husband turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I, I burst out laughing. I thought they were kidding. They're and literally they in the jungle room. <laughs> So I told them, they're just literally swiping back and forth. And I lean over and I said to them, hey, sir, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head. Because look, we're actually there. You don't need to look at it on a screen. And they backed away, clearly thinking I was completely insane. They walked out of the room. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in a corner staring at his at Snapchat. Because from the minute we landed, he could not stop. And I went up to him. I did a thing that's never good with a teenager. I tried to grab the phone out of his hands. And I said, I know you're afraid of missing out. This is guaranteeing you will miss out. You're not showing up at your own life. You're not present at your own existence. He stormed off and I wandered around Graceland and the rest of Memphis on my own. And then that night I found him in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying and he was staring at his phone. And I, I went up to him and I apologized for getting so angry. And he didn't look up, but he said, I know something's really wrong and I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to figure out what's going on here. Of course, I learned that what's happening to us is much more complicated than just the technology. And of course, there are many positive aspects of the technology. But I realized that we had kind of come away to get away from this problem of being present. But this problem of not being able to be present was everywhere. And it really fits with what you're saying. Because if you think about our generation's experience, it was really those 10 years in which Adam became a man that it felt like the world's attention began to crumble and break, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I want to talk about the technology component of this because I actually think it's significant and meaningful. But many of the people you spoke to argued that this problem of attention predates the internet potentially by a century. Yeah. Can you step back a little bit and, and talk about that challenge of attention that basically industrial societies have faced, not just technological societies? Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. And and um, you're absolutely right that what, what some aspects of the internet, and I would stress the sum of, some aspects of the internet um, are contributing to this problem and they're doing it by accelerating trends that actually have been in way for a long time. One of the people who really helped me to understand this is an amazing man named Professor Suna Lehman, who's at the Technical University of Denmark in Copenhagen, who was one of the co-authors of the first study 
to prove that collective attention span really is shrinking. Mm. So I went to interview him in Copenhagen and he explained to me, so, I mean, he actually wanted to investigate this for a personal reason as well. He had this problem where every, he's got these two young sons and every morning they would come in and jump on the bed and jump all over him. And he loves his sons, he adores them. But absolutely instinctively, the first thing he always did was reach for his phone, not for his sons. He was really uncomfortable with this. He wanted to figure out, you know, am I just a grumpy old man? He's a very rigorous scientist. He said, look, you don't want to rely on anecdotes. It's, is something really happening to us? So he, he and his co-authors did this really fascinating research. It initially started as a much smaller study. They initially started by looking at Twitter. So they looked at trending topics on Twitter. And he wanted to figure out, well, has the amount of time people spend collectively focusing on any one topic, does the Twitter data tell us it's gone up, gone down? What does it say? So they looked at Twitter data from 2013 that showed in 2013, when a topic trended on Twitter, it would be discussed on average for 17.5 hours. But by the time you got to 2016, it would, any trending topic would be discussed on average for 13 hours. So quite a significant fall. Okay, I thought maybe this is a phenomenon of Twitter. So they then studied loads of things, Google searches, Reddit, Wikipedia, just a huge array of sites online. See, well, what, what's happened there? They discovered with the singular exception of Wikipedia, the trend was always the same. It looked strikingly similar. With each year that passed, indeed with each month that passed, we were focusing collectively less. So that, that's the kind of early stuff that look at a very recent trend. But to go to the more important thing you raised, Taylor, which I think is more deep and more important, is they then tried to figure out, well, how far back can this go? How far back does this trend go? So they did this really interesting research. It's a very clever idea. So as you know, Google Books have scanned, I think it's 4 million books by now, something like that, going way back, going back hundreds of years. And there's a, a, a technique you can use. It's called detecting n-grams. It's an algorithmic technique where basically you can scan books from the past and detect effectively what were the trending topics in you know 1961, right? Because mm. new, they, it can figure out that new phrases emerge and then disappear. So think about, I don't know what would be a good example, no deal Brexit. No one had ever used the phrase no deal Brexit before 2016. No one will ever use it again now except for historians or people remembering the idiocy of my country. You know, so they developed a technique that could effectively detect trending Twitter topics, which represent collective attention in the past. And what they discovered, they, they studied texts going back to the 1880s, is with each decade that passed, the graph looked exactly the same as the graph from Twitter from 2013 to 2016, almost exactly the same. Each decade, we collectively focused less and less. So that's about collective attention, which is a different phenomenon to individual attention. But what's important, what we know from the science, is some of the factors that drive the collapse in collective attention are also driving a collapse in individual attention. So we know, for example, part of what's happening with collective attention is that the, what, the experience of the world is speeding up, right? That the more information you're exposed to, the faster the world appears to go. We also know from individual attention research, for example, think about speed, the research on speed reading. You can train any literate person to read much faster than they currently do. It's surprisingly effective, but it always comes with a cost, even for professional speed readers, which is the faster you read, the less you understand, the less you remember, and the more you're drawn to shallow and simplistic arguments. Or think about it the other way around, slowness. All slow practices, things like yoga, tai chi, meditation, over time improve attention. So there's something going on there with speed and the amount of the speed at which life goes, which then, of course, the internet, and particularly the iteration of the internet we currently have, is a huge accelerant for. Is there an inverse relationship then between information and attention? Or is it, how do you describe that relationship between information and yeah. attention? So I explored this with some of the experts like Professor Lehman. He gave a very good analogy. He said, at the moment, it's like we're getting information sprayed at us from a fire hose. Um, and it's just too much. There's an amazing study I quote in the book that shows that if the average person, I'm going to get the figure slightly wrong. I think in 19, 1986, the average person was exposed to the equivalent, if you added together all the words they were exposed to, to I think the equivalent of 42 newspapers worth of words a day. And it went up in some short period of time to something like 170 newspapers worth. There's been a huge increase in the amount of information we're exposed to. 
And we know speed shatters attention and slowness nurtures attention. And I mean, one of the challenges of attention that, that certainly I feel most profoundly is this inability to focus for long periods of time. And, and we can get to all those different kind attributes of that. But um, even just the idea of reading a book um, like you, I feel has I've degenerated that capability. And, mm. and frankly, it's, it's my job to read books. <laughs> and I still find it very difficult. But you describe what we're losing when we lose that kind of focus. Can you describe what's happening there? Like, What's happening in our mind when we get lost in a book or get lost in our thoughts? So I would actually put it, just to deal with the first bit of what you said first, Taylor, if that's okay. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right, but I think it's even deeper than that. I mean, I would say to anyone listening, just think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's, you know, starting a business, uh, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever that thing you're proud of is, it took a lot of sustained focus and attention. And when your focus and attention break down, your ability to achieve your goals break down. Now you have a goal and I have a goal of reading books, right? That's one of the goals that breaks down. Also your ability to solve your problems breaks down. So to me, this is so crucial. If you think about reading, reading books specifically, it's really interesting if you look at the research on this interview, for example, Professor Anne Mangan, who's at Stavanger University in Norway. And I apologize to any Norwegian people listening. I know I've said Stavanger wrong. If I ever try and say any Norwegian word, they just look at me baffled. But um, so when you read a physical book, um, you learn to read linearly from left to right in English, at least. And it trains your brain to read linearly. But one of the things Professor Mangan has shown is when you read on screens, we tend to read in a Z shape. You sort of scan slightly ahead and then go back. And it turns out linear reading means you absorb more, you remember more. There's loads of evidence. There's more than 60 studies for this now for the phenomenon. It's called screen inferiority. So what we're losing is depth. What you lose is the ability to remember what you're reading. And unfortunately, if you read too much on screens, what happens is that screen reading then contaminates your paper reading. So you'll start reading books in that scanned way which makes books much less pleasurable. It becomes less like having a bath where you just immerse yourself and wallow and more like dashing around a supermarket to get the things you need and then leaving again, right? So you can see how that happens. And this is a huge, um, a huge problem. In the, in the discussion about technology and, and the effect it has on our lives, we often sort of reach for metaphors that technology is like something <laughs> we've had before um, or the problems of technology are similar to some other thing we've dealt with and solved before. And one of the ways it's talked about is through the lens of addiction. And I'm wondering, as, as someone who's written and thought a lot about addiction, um, why that isn't a frame in your book on attention? Do you, do you not think it's an addiction problem? It's a really smart question. And to be completely candid with you, the answer is because what I've, I've done so much work trying to reframe addiction, because we think about addiction, people think heroin addiction is about heroin, right? Obviously, heroin plays a role in heroin addiction, but heroin addiction is not about heroin. Heroin addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be, right? And so you want to anesthetize yourself. Um, and I don't think we've reframed the addiction debate enough <laughs> for me to be comfortable using, because I think when, when people say we're addicted to our phones, they think about it in the simplistic, oh, this thing took me over. Yeah. You know, in the way people think heroin addicts have been taken over by heroin. Now, clearly heroin, the chemicals in heroin play a significant role, but primarily addiction is about the desire to not be present. Um, so to be honest, I don't think we've reframed. I actually think there's a better analogy. I think the obesity crisis is a really good analogy. If you look at a picture of a beach in Canada, Britain, the United States in say 1960, just Google pictures of beaches in 1960, they look really weird to us because everyone is what we would call slim or buff, literally everyone, right? And it's odd. You look at it, you go, well, where's all the overweight people? I say this as an overweight person myself. There's no judgment there. Um, they're not there. And then you look at the figures for obesity. It's not that they were staying at home. There was virtually no obesity in Canada, the United States and Britain in 1960, right? I mean, almost literally none. And then 
there's an extraordinary explosion in obesity. Between 1960 and today, the average American has gained 22 pounds, a staggering level of increase. That's incredible. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that has not happened because individual Americans or Canadians or British people became lazy or you know greedy or the, whatever stigmatizing things we say about overweight people. It's because we had a profound change in the environment. We built cities that you can't walk and bike around. The entire food supply system changed such that the food we eat bears almost no relationship to what people ate in 1960. And we became more stressed, so you comfort eat more, right? So the obesity crisis is a social crisis, not an individual failing, right? But we responded primarily by blaming the individual and saying the solution was solely for the individual to tweak their behavior. Basically, we responded to a social epidemic by giving everyone diet books and scolding them. And we can all see how well that worked, right? I think there's a really interesting and tight analogy with the attention crisis. Our attention is getting significantly worse because of profound changes that have happened in the way we live, right? Which go include some aspects of our tech that go way beyond them. But we can fix those problems, right? But at the moment, we are responding with the equivalent of digital diet books. We're doing the equivalent of what we did with the obesity epidemic. And if we respond to the attention crisis the same way we responded to the obesity crisis, we'll get the same outcome, which is an absolute disaster. We don't have to respond that way. If we go all the way back to the birth of the obesity crisis, at the time, there were people who said, this doesn't have to happen, right? We could design cities that people bike and walk around. We can keep cities like that. The Netherlands did that, right? Um, we can subsidize healthy food, not unhealthy food. We can ban for the promotion of the most unhealthy food, right? The Netherlands did those things. That's why the Netherlands has obesity that's 13%, still bad, but 13% compared to the absolutely staggering, a majority of Americans are now overweight or obese. So I'm really interested in exploring the equivalence of that for the, for the attention crisis. I'm very worried that what we're doing at the moment is solely giving people individual advice. Now, I'm strongly in favor of individual advice. It's valuable, but it will only solve a, one part of the problem. Just one last thing on addiction. I mean, one thing you've argued around addiction is that, yes, drugs are addictive, but at its core, it is a lack of meaning, a lack of community, a lack of compassion in modern society that's leading to this certain kind of addiction we're seeing now. I did see analogies between that and why we might use technology. Like, is it because we're oh, yeah. breaking as a society that we're not as compassionate, that we don't have sources of meaning? Yeah, you're definitely right. I mean, the way I would put it is the kind of overarching way of thinking about this, I would say, is everyone listening knows they have natural physical needs. Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And our culture is good at lots of things. I'm very glad to be alive today. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting a lot of these underlying psychological needs. And of course, when your needs are not met, that leads to all sorts of behaviors that are inadequate solutions, right? Uh, addiction is an attempt to solve the problem of your life being too painful to be present in. Depression is another response where you just think, well, I just can't take this anymore. Anxiety is another response. And I think it's definitely the case. Just think about one of the causes, loneliness, right? Um, Professor John Cassiopo, who's at the University of Chicago, who sadly... Um, died a little while ago, which is a terrible loss. He was the leading expert on loneliness in the world. Did lots of research showing that, for example, lonely people, their attention gets worse because you become more vigilant. You're looking out. When you don't feel anyone's looking out for you, you feel like you're in danger. And so you, your attention starts to scan the horizon for risks. So it's certainly the case that a society whose psychological needs are not met will engage in all sorts of behaviors that are attempts to solve... You know, Mark Maron, the comedian, said every Facebook status update could be boiled down to the sentiment, would someone somewhere please acknowledge I exist, right? Which is a, at some level a joke, but contains a truth in it, right? It's a fairly profound statement. <laughs> you know, 41% of Americans agree with the statement, no one knows me well. A society, you know, there's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none, right? So of course, a society where almost a majority of people have no friends, well, I understand why they turn to Facebook friends. It's better than nothing. But what you've got to do is rebuild the society, right? 
So, so to do that, you look at a pretty sweeping array of potential causes and contributing variables to this problem. And, and frankly, that's what I liked most about the book. I'm, I'm very used to talk, thinking and talking about and engaging and researching in the tech aspect of this debate. Mm. But what I loved is that you took this topic that I'm engaged in on the tech space and broadened it out to include a whole host of variables that, frankly, I'd never even really attached to this issue. And I'm wondering about your method for doing that. So did you start with this broader list? Did you start with technology and then keep getting broader and broader? You know, it's funny. My technique is uh, <laughs> when I start doing the research, I, I, I cast my net really wide. I read everything I can. And I draw up a list of maybe 40 or 50 kind of people in the field. I go and interview as many of them as will agree to talk to me. And at the end of every interview, I say, who else should I go and talk to? And they very often people will give me a list of five or six people. And then I interview, end up interviewing hundreds of people. And, you know, I would say probably 80% of the people I interview don't, it's probably higher actually, probably 90% of the people I interview don't end up in the book. But yeah. very often either they're really important for knowing, you know, that I'm not talking to a rogue scientist, that I'm representing the consensus in the field. So I think with that, yeah, it was really just you know, because I'm not an expert, right? I'm a journalist. And so for me, it's about going to the people who are doing the smartest thinking in the world, sitting with them. It's very important to sit with them face to face or you don't, it's funny, they don't give you what, what you get via screens. And then just sort of really deeply listening. And then of course, digging very deeply into their scientific research. Obviously I do read a lot of it before I meet them to ask the questions and then dig into it deeply again. So that's my method. But I think I, I really appreciate that what you said, uh, Taylor, about the the look at all these different factors. So the way I began to think about it is if you think about this tech, that aspects of this tech as a virus, right? A virus that, this is stretching the analogy a bit far, but the virus that is specifically designed, in fact, to invade our attention. Now that would have been potent at any point in human history, but it arrived at a moment when our collective attentional immune system was already down. There's loads of changes that had happened Loads of changes had happened that were already undermining our attention. It made us unusually vulnerable. Now, stress, we would have been vulnerable at any time, but we were unusually vulnerable. So that can sound a bit weird, so I'll give you an example that I think everyone just gets immediately. We sleep 20% less than we did 100 years ago. And so I interviewed the leading sleep experts, many of the leading sleep experts in the world, and they just said, look, Professor, for example, Dr. Charles Seisler at Harvard Medical School, who you know has advised everyone from the Boston Red Sox to the US Secret Service on, uh, on sleep, said, look, even if nothing else had changed, the fact that we sleep so much less, that alone would be causing a huge attention crisis. And obviously that's mm. not the only attention crisis that we're talking about. Uh, only co contributed to this is one of the 12 causes that I write about in Stolen Focus. And so you, you, you know, the effect of a lack of sleep is so immense. If you stay awake for 19 hours, your, um, your ability to focus and pay attention deteriorates as much as if you had got legally drunk. So it's an extraordinary effect. Dr. Seisler did this really interesting research. They, he gets tired people. They're not that tired into brain scans. And it discovered that you can appear to be awake and looking around you, yet as much as you and I are now, yet whole parts of your brain can have literally gone to sleep, right? Um, when we say we're half asleep, it turns out that's not a metaphor a lot of the time, right? Um, and this is because when you're sleeping, your brain is repairing. The whole time you're awake, something called metabolic waste is building up in your brain, what Professor Roxanne Prichard calls brain cell poop. And when you sleep, a watery fluid rinses through your brain and carries that, that, that metabolic waste out of your brain, down into your liver, where it obviously starts to exit your body. If you don't get eight hours sleep a night, you don't repair properly. You don't get rid of that metabolic waste. So you think about, everyone will have had the experience of a night where they didn't sleep well, the next day they're much more likely to mindlessly scroll through Twitter or TikTok or Facebook or whatever it is. That's sort of happening to us all collectively, right? Does that ring true to you, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, look, ab absolutely. Um, I am wondering which of those you that came as a surprise to you, though, as you went broader and broader. Like Each one kind of makes intuitive sense when you see them in the package that you put them in in the book. But I can imagine that some of those must have been surprising, frankly. Oh, God, the one that was both the most surprising... It may be the most surprising because it's the one that I most want not to be true <laughs> is the one about food, right? Yeah. And um, 
I literally have a KFC bucket from last night in this apartment, which gives you some sense of um, <laughs> why I have a problem with this. But So there's this really interesting new movement called nutritional psychiatry that I think is incredibly fertile and fascinating. And it obviously studies how the, the things we eat affect the way our brains function. And they're making all sorts of really fascinating breakthroughs. But I think there are essentially three ways they've demonstrated in which the way we eat affects our ability to focus and pay attention. And the first is, so imagine you have the standard British or Canadian breakfast, you know, sugary cereal, white bread with butter on it, whatever it might be. What that does is that releases a huge amount of energy really quickly into your brain. And it feels great. You're like, yes, the day has begun. I'm, I'm yeah, awake. I'm there. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> and then what happens an hour or two later, you're sitting at your desk or your child is sitting at their school desk and your energy just brutally crashes. And you get brain fog where you just can't think very clearly until you have another sugary carby treat, right? The way we eat puts us on a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes throughout the day, which leaves us with long patches of brain fog that you don't get if you eat food, like say you had oatmeal for breakfast that would release energy more steadily throughout the day. At the moment, it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini, right? It'll go really fast and then it'll just stop. Whereas if you put in the fuel that it's designed to take, it'll go better. The second way in which the way we, we eat is affecting our ability to focus is um, for your brain to function optimally, you need to have certain nutrients in your diet. Most famously, one we're lacking at the moment is omega-3s, which you get in fresh fish, sardines. And it turns out supplements just don't cut it, right? Your body just doesn't absorb nutrients from supplements, anything like it absorbs them from food. The third way is to me the most chilling, which is it's not just that our diets lack the things we need in order for our brains to optimally function. It's that our diets contain chemicals that act on us like drugs. So there's a study here in Britain in Southampton where they got 297 kids and they split them into two groups. And the first group was just given water. And the second group was given water laced with the kind of food dyes that are found in loads of the food we get at the supermarket, loads of the stuff your kids eat all the time and that you eat all the time. And then they monitored them. And the kids who drank the synthetic dyes were way significantly more likely to become hyperactive, to become manic, to have attention problems. So Britain and, well, the European Union, back when Britain was a member, and those happy days, um, banned, in, subsequently banned those dyes. The United States and I believe Canada have not yet done that. I'm sure that explains some of the gap between ADHD rates in children in the, uh, Europe and, and North America. So yeah, th that surprised me. And frankly, it's challenging. It's one of the ones that I most struggle with making the appropriate change in my life. Well, and boy, is it one that's, talk about things that are structural and embedded in our society. I mean, food is kind of as complicated as it gets, frankly. Exactly. But there are lots of things. There are lots of things. Obviously, there are individual changes we can make, but there are also big structural things we can do there. It, lots of countries have banned the marketing of junk food to children. There's real low-hanging fruit we could do. I mean, American schools are full of vending machines with the most shitty a sugary carby trick. There's lots of real low-hanging fruit there. And then there's bigger things because with all of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus, I argue that there's two levels at which we need to tackle this. I think of them as defense and offense, right? There's all sorts of things we can do to defend ourselves and our children as individuals. And I'm passionately in favor of those things. But to be honest, at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over our brains all the time. And then they're leaning forward and going, hey, buddy, you might want to learn how to meditate then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, well, screw you. I'll learn to meditate. That's very valuable. But we need to stop you pouring this itching powder over us, right? Which is why we have to have this higher level where we take on the forces that are doing this to us. And the importance of doing it, you stress, is not just individual. It's not just that we all feel like we can't, we feel bad. We feel like we can't think properly. But you make a pretty compelling case that there's a bigger collective action problem here, that this is actually limiting our capacity to solve some big problems that need collective thought, frankly, and devoted attention over time. That I was wondering, coming out of the pandemic, if the pandemic's actually showed us that we can do big things in some ways. I mean, the type of societal shift that happened was remarkable in terms of, like you mentioned in the book even, that we all moved to virtual working and productivity didn't collapse we created a vaccine that needed devoted attention from thousands of researchers around the world all at once. And 
I wonder if there, there's a way kind of of getting around this collective action problem and so the pandemic's kind of shown that if we're shocked out of it, we can we actually can do it. So I think what you've seen, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. What you've seen during the pandemic is some of the best of humanity. Most of us took sensible collective action to protect ourselves and other people. And we had the most stunningly heroic scientists who did achieve things that, I mean, you know, I'm mean, talking to you from London. Half the population of London died in plagues in the 16th century, right? You think about how far we've come. Um, of course, the I don't want to imply that COVID would have been as bad as the bubonic plague if it hadn't been for vaccines, but it would have been much worse. Um, but I also think there are, you're right that it's not just that our individual attention has been harmed, our collective attention has been profoundly harmed. And it's a moment that to me distills that. So Jair Bolsonaro, uh, a lot of listeners will know, was a marginal, washed up, far right figure in Brazil, a grotesque figure, until he was picked up by the algorithms of YouTube and Facebook and massively promoted by those algorithms. The night he became ele- he was elected president, his supporters chanted, Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. They knew one of the key reasons why he won. It's not the only one, of course, that would be absurd to suggest, but it was a really significant factor. And I do think we have to understand there are many ways in which our collective attention is being profoundly harmed. But let's look at one that we know Facebook knows about because their own data scientists discovered it, right? So in the wake of Brexit and Trump, we now know, thanks to the heroic leaking of Francis Haugen, Facebook set up an internal investigation to figure out if they played a role in the polarization that led to those two catastrophic outcomes. And of course, all of their algorithms, all of their engineering power are built around figuring out okay, how do we get Taylor to pick up his phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible? And they are unbelievably good at it, right? They are very good at it. Because their AI was trained to figure out, okay, what keeps people scrolling? Bumped into a very unfortunate human truth, which has been known about by psychologists for many decades. It's called negativity bias. Human beings will stare longer at something that makes them angry and upset than they will at something that makes them feel good, right? 10-week-old babies will stare longer at an angry face than a happy face. Right? Probably for a very good evolutionary reason. Our ancestors who were looking out for the angry people probably survived longer than the ones who were just staring at the pretty flowers. Right, But when this combines with a business model built around figuring out in highly sophisticated ways how to keep people scrolling, it leads to a horrific outcome. So imagine two teenage girls who go to the same party. They both leave on the same bus. One of them puts a status update where they say, that was a really nice party. I had a great time. I loved it. The other one says, Karen was a fucking skank at that party and her boyfriend's a prick and everyone's stank and it just goes into a tirade, right? The algorithms are always scanning posts to see what kind of language you're using. And it knows that angry language keeps people staring longer. So it'll put the first status update into a few people's feed and it will put the second status update into far more people's feeds, right? So it's constantly promoting anger, outrage, and polarization. This is not my view. This is the view of Facebook's own data scientists. Their own data scientists explained that one third of all the people who joined neo-Nazi groups in Germany, in Germany, a country with some experience with Nazism, had joined because the algorithms had specifically recommended that they join them. You might want to join, it said, followed by a neo-Nazi group, right? And in fact, what Facebook's data scientists recommended was that there was only one solution, Because they said that Facebook's growth under this current business model is inextricably tied to polarization. They said the only solution was for Facebook to adopt a degrowth strategy, not set the world on fire, and move away from its current business model. I think Facebook's own data scientists are right. The Wall Street Journal, when they reported all of this, they then said very dryly in their report, Mark Zuckerberg asked that he not be brought any reports like this ever again, right? So (laughs) this wasn't their intention, but they now know what they're doing, right? They know what they're doing. They know the catastrophic effect and they are choosing to do it anyway. And at that point, they are profoundly morally culpable for what they're doing. And we need to build a movement to make them change and stop doing it. Yeah. And and look, I think the idea that the structure of our technology and the incentives is leading to these much bigger societal problems, whether it's an inability to solve climate change or the division we're seeing in democratic societies. I mean, 
Look what's happening in Canada right now with these trucking protests. I mean, there's a level of anger and um, detachment from democratic governance that we haven't seen here in a very long time. And there's no question that has something to do with the way in which we learn about the world and communicate with each other. No, you're totally right, Taylor. And of course, it's not the only factor going on, but it is a really significant one. And again, the fact that it's happening in societies we associate rightly with being profoundly peaceful and orderly, you know, Canada, Norway, New Zealand, I'm a citizen of Switzerland as well as Britain. It's happening in those societies, then you know it's happening everywhere, right? I I agree. And and this is a significant factor causing this polarization. And we're relatively early in this polarization. And it's important to stress, it does not have to be this way. As Dr. James Williams, who I would argue is the leading philosopher of attention in the world, used to be at the heart of Google left because he was horrified. He said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days. We can (laughs) put these things right. We don't have to tolerate this, right? But I argue in the book, we have to have, just like we needed and need a feminist movement for women to reclaim their bodies and their lives, I argue we need an attention movement to reclaim our minds. Because at the moment, we're in a race, right? As you know better than I do, Taylor, a lot of these 12 factors, particularly the tech one, are on course to become much more powerful. Paul Graham, one of the leading investors in Silicon Valley said, the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is than Facebook, right? Now imagine the next crack-like iteration, right, beyond that. Um, And it's true, by the way, think about food. Food is becoming much better at targeting our primitive pleasure centers. And there's many, many other things we haven't talked about in the book that, that are similar. So that's one side of the race. On the other side of the race, we've got to have a movement of all of us saying, no, no, you don't get to do this to us. No, that is not a good life. It's not a good life where we can't read books, where we can't look into each other's faces, where our children can't play outside. No, we choose a life with some depth, with meaning. We we will not allow our brains to be invaded, but it requires a profound shift in consciousness. We need to stop blaming ourselves. We need to stop only asking for individual tweaks, although individual changes are significant and important. And we need to realize we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back if we want to. And think about a concrete example. So just, it was almost exactly a year to the day since we are talking. So, um, Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, not someone I would stress I'm normally sympathetic to, did a really brave thing. So as all your listeners know, um, advertising that used to go to to print media now has gone to Facebook. So even though people read the news on Facebook, and that news is gathered by the Globe and Mail, by the Vancouver Sun, by CBC, Facebook gets most of the revenue. So Scott Morrison said, this is not acceptable. This is really bad for democracy. You need to give a percentage of your uh, advertising revenue, Facebook, to the news media because they're producing the product that people are consuming on your site. And Facebook lost their shit. They went crazy. They threatened to cut the whole of Australia off. They, in fact, did try to cut all news sites off from Australia. And then what happened? Quietly, they basically capitulated. We don't know the exact details because the deal was done quietly, but they gave in because ultimately, we are much more powerful than these technology companies. We own our societies. They don't own us. We own them, right? Well, and the, the very idea that they can't be governed just serves their interest to not be governed, frankly. Exactly. Um, so and we, and it's, not, it's just can, not true. We can do it. We can absolutely 100%. do it. Um, so I'm, just, I'm conscious of your time here. Just a last thing to close here. I mean, I, I recently spoke to Nicholas Carr, whose book, The Shallows, you mentioned in your book. And, and I actually think... He, can serve as almost a prologue to your project. I mean, in the sense that 10 years ago or 15 years ago, he was warning us about the challenges to our mind that were going to come from embedding these technologies in our lives. And I think many, including myself, frankly, at the time, thought he was overstating the case. And I, I think he, he was a bit of ahead of his time, maybe. Um, but I wonder if you think um, this kind of shift in consciousness, this shift in the way we structure our society is now possible. Are we, at a, are we at a tipping point here for the kinds of things he warned about then, you're warning about now? Do you think we're ready for this change? 
When I think about that, and this might sound really odd for a moment, I think a lot about my grandmothers who I absolutely loved. And um, my grandmothers were the age I am now in 1963. One of them was a working class Scottish woman uh, and the other one was a Swiss peasant woman living in a hut on the side of a mountain. And in 1963, neither of my grandmothers were allowed to have a bank account in their own name because they were married women. It was legal for their husbands to rape them, as it was legal for men to rape their wives in every single country in the world. Uh, my Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote, right? And I think about, because sometimes people say to me, oh God, these forces that you're saying we need to take on are so powerful. Mm. And I say to them, you're absolutely right, they're really powerful. They're not a hundredth as powerful as men were in 1963. Men controlled every company, every country, every parliament, every police force, and they had ever since those institutions have been created, apart from a few hereditary queens along the way, right? And women in 1963 didn't say, oh, you know what, we're just fucked. We can't do this. They started where they stood. They started to fight. I don't want to for a minute underestimate how much further we've got to go in achieving liberation for women. But I think about my niece's life, right? My Swiss grandmother loved to paint and draw. And they used to tell her to shut the fuck up and get into the kitchen. When my niece is 17, loved to draw, we started Googling art schools, right? My, my Swiss grandmother never got to know my niece, but my, I know she would be so proud of those changes that happened. So we've, as human beings, we've taken on much bigger forces than this, right? I absolutely believe we can win this, but you know, Elizabeth Warren puts it really well. In politics, you don't get what you don't fight for, right? We have to decide we value attention. We have to decide we want to fight for it. And we have to decide we're going to take on these 12 factors that are doing this to us. If we do that, I am confident we can reclaim our attention. If we don't do it, we're just going to be more invaded and more addled, and we'll look back nostalgically on the day when office workers focus for three whole minutes on a task. You know, like so. Yeah, we've got we've got to decide. We've got to decide. We value this. We've got to decide. It's something we want for our children. Obviously, a lot of the book is about our kids, and we've got to we've got to really struggle for it. Well, look. I mean, thank you for everything you're doing to help that. I mean, and just I don't think enough people put in the time and effort to summarize the complexity of the academic discourse so holistically and, and thoughtfully and, and write it in a way that re will reach a broad audience. So uh, I really thank you for that. Oh, I'm really moved by that. Thank you for engaging so deeply with it. And um, what a lovely conversation. Thanks, Taylor. That was my conversation with Johan Hari. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Huntberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart with the associate producer, Abi Roheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week. Oh, I meant to say, or my publishers tase me. Anyone who wants some more information about the book can go to stolenfocusbook.com where you can listen for free to audio of lots of the people we talked about. And you can see where to get the audio book, the ebook, or the physical book. I'm also meant to say you can get it from any good bookstore, but I always feel like you could also get it from a shitty bookstore if you wanted you to. Right? Like, we don't have like a quality <laughs> Do we need a value right? judgment? No, oh, they no. don't get to stock my book. They're not allowed. I think we just uh, need people to read, frankly. That's, that's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You can, you know, you can read a book. <laughs> you know, exactly. you can do it. Right? Exactly. Let's start with that, the structure. <laughs> yeah. With that horrific and depressing thought, Thanks very much, Taylor. I really enjoyed it.